back in the fur shed. This is Trapping Today. I'm Jeremiah Wood. Great to be here. Thank you guys for listening in. It's great to have you again here for the podcast. We are brought to you by Cots Brothers Lures. K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S dot com. Trap smarter, work harder, enjoy the success that follows. Cots Bros is the trapping supply dealer of choice for the Trapping Today podcast. Hope you'll check him out and support those guys that support us. Brought to you by Onyx Maps. Use your phone as a GPS on the trap line. Mark your trap locations, get landowner information, scout using the latest aerial imagery. Basically an app that lets you do almost anything as it uh, pertains to mapping and using your phone out in the woods. Onyxmaps.com, use the code TRAP, T-R-A-P, when you check out on onyxmaps.com to get 20% off of your first purchase. And finally, we are brought to you by my new book, More Than Wolverine, an Alaska Wilderness Trap Line. You can find the book at Amazon.com. Uh, I really appreciate guys who have purchased the book already. That That is, uh, it's great. Um, if you have bought a copy on Amazon, I would so appreciate if you could leave a review, a rating and or review on Amazon. That really helps other people find the book. And you can get signed copies of the book at trappingtodaystore.com. I have those in stock now. Um, Amazon's 20 bucks uh, free shipping and trappingtodaystore.com 25 bucks free shipping uh, and I'm going to personally uh, sign that to you uh, whoever orders the book um, appreciate it thanks guys I hope I think and I believe that you will very much enjoy the book if you're into trapping you're into the wilderness lifestyle and all the things that I get so excited about so more than Wolverine and Alaska Wilderness Trapline I'm going to talk a little bit tonight about some of the the thought process uh, that that goes through my head when I'm thinking about that book and the book is kind of it's interesting because it's I don't know it wasn't really a uh, it, it, it was more of an emotional project for me than an intellectual project or like an academic type thing it was just like just throwing my thoughts down on paper and uh, eventually publishing them. And so a, a lot of it's just kind of thought processes, things that are going on in my head, things that I'm thinking about out there uh, on the trap line. And then back here, you know, looking and researching and, and learning about all the history of that area and, and that trapping wilderness lifestyle. So um, we're, I'm going to talk maybe a little bit tonight about sort of that thought process. But please, if you haven't got the book already, please uh, check it out. More Than Wolverine. Just search for that on Amazon um, or go to trappingtodaystore.com and you'll find it there. Got a lot of good feedback from people so far. It's 166 pages, I think, and it's a, a pretty fast read. So it's not going to be very time consuming. A lot of people, a few people told me that they finished it uh, in like two days. So it's a pretty, it can be a pretty quick read. Hopefully it keeps your attention all the way through. And uh, I, I would really appreciate you buying a copy because, um, yeah, I put a lot into it. I really want to get it in a lot of people's hands. And tell your friends, buy your friends a copy. That would be great as well. far as the podcast, um, I haven't done one in several weeks now, probably three weeks, I guess. It's amazing. There's more people listening to the podcast now that I'm doing it um, on a non-regular basis than there was when I did it every week. So that's kind of interesting. Um, <laughs> should have figured that out a while back. But anyway, I decided I, I wanted to um, sit down and talk a little bit because we are 
just uh, coming into the big fur auction of the season. So this is going to be basically the one auction. You know, it used to be back in the day when you could actually sell fur and there was a decent market. We had three or four of these big auctions. Then it went to three, it went to two, and then it went. now we're at one where there's really just one auction that, that's going to set the market. And it's only all the way to the end of March. So as I record this, it's March 19th, and the auction is going to start on March 24th. This is Fur Harvesters uh, up in North Bay, Ontario, Canada. And this is going to be the first auction that, basically the first major auction that's going to basically tell us where fur prices are at this year. But honestly, we kind of already know. If you've been listening in, you already know where we're at. This is interesting. One of the reasons that I'm doing this, that I'm recording this, is because, believe it or not, I have had several emails in the last two weeks that went this way. I get a bunch of fur and I don't know where to sell it. Hey, I have such and such species. I have this many. I'm in this state. Um, I need to find a buyer. Do you know anybody who buys who who's looking for this these furs? I mean, guys... You've been following along. You know that there, there is virtually no market for wild fur in, in the context of what we used to know as a wild fur market. I mean, we, we all knew this. That if, if you've been, unless you've been living under a rock, uh, we knew this coming into this season. All of the macroeconomic factors that were at play with COVID, with the, just the lack of demand for fur, with the economy in, in um, emerging market countries and other you know countries outside of the United States, we knew this was going to happen. We knew the fur market, Canada goose, stopped buying coyotes. You know, and, and one of the things, I, I love the guys at Fur Harvesters, and, and I'm so glad that we still have an auction house in place, but I mean, they were pretty uh, adamant. Uh, you know, we, we brought up the issue of Canada goose not, not buying coyote pelts anymore. And, and they're going, getting away from fur, from using coyote fur, using fur at all. And I, I, I knew this was going to be a problem. Wasn't sure whether it was going to be a few months or a couple of years before it was going to, going to actually uh, take place and, and show itself throughout the market. And, and, you know, FHA was adamant that, oh, we got all kinds of buyers that are not Canada goose that are from these European countries. There's a lot of demand for coyotes. Uh, I just didn't buy it. I, I don't, you know, I, I trust, I know, not that I don't trust those guys because they're really knowledgeable guys and they have the pulse in the market and they know a lot of people, but it just felt to me like the demand was very superficial and there just wasn't going to be a, a really uh, a really deep market for coyotes this year. And as it's turning out right now, that's, that's exactly what's happening. So, uh, what I'm going to do is kind of give you an idea. There's been a bunch of small auctions that have taken place throughout the United States, different state uh, trappers association fur auctions. Those are, you can kind of get an idea of the market in a small way uh, from those auctions. But for the most part, those are so small that the, the bulk of the buyers are going to be small orders and craft type buyers people who have very specific orders for small items and the price is really isn't representative of the true market. The true market is going to be, you know, thousands and thousands of uh, furs being exchanged. 
So we don't really have that yet, but we are starting to see some semi-big auctions with pretty decent amounts of fur being sold that are giving us a little preview. And so we're going into fur harvesters. That's going to be the big one. I, I was going to wait and do this episode after that auction took place, but I think I'll just go ahead and I'll do this now and then we'll do another one after that's done and give a, a recap and I'll do a thing for trappingtoday.com and a little write up on the auction. But um, I, I just wanted to give folks an idea because I feel bad for everybody, the people who have went out and spent a bunch of money, increased gas prices and, and went all out and caught a bunch of fur that they really have no place to sell it. And I feel bad for guys like Billy Thompson, you know, my friend up here that, that's coming up here in a couple of weeks to, to trap. And he's an older guy, a heck of a beaver trapper, the best beaver trapper I know, and only has a few years left, you know, not getting any younger in his early 70s. And, you know, how much longer does he have? He loves to trap. But this year, gas prices are 50% more than they've been the past several years. And fur prices are 50% less. And last year, they gas was a pretty decent price, and the pelt price was terrible for beaver. They they didn't even skin a bunch of beaver, but they made up for it with caster. Caster was going for really good prices. Well, guess what, guys? The beaver caster market has has started to show some real signs of weakness. That ninety to one hundred dollar a pound caster uh, not happening anymore. We're looking at more like sixty dollars a pound caster. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's just a, you know, it started to climb downwards, uh, steadily, slow and steadily, but I, I think that's going to continue. So uh, really there, there's just, everything's pointing negative and I hate to be a negative guy. I, I always try to look for the positives, but I'm trying to be realistic with you. So we're going to go through a bunch of this stuff and just kind of give you an idea of, uh, of where we're at in the market. If you haven't. Uh, if you have been living <laughs> under a rock, if you will. So the auction that we're going to talk about is the Idaho Trappers Association Fur Auction. And that's one of the, those western state fur auctions are pretty good because they, they attract quite a lot of fur. They have generally pretty good quality fur overall as, as it relates to the rest of the country. And there's usually quite a few buyers so you, you can get probably as close as you're going to get to a true market condition by looking at those uh, Western auctions. Now, one of the things that's happened in recent years is that people have seen pretty decent prices come from these Western auctions and people from other parts of the country have shipped their fur to the Western auctions. And that's actually lowered the price of a lot of items. For instance, when coyotes were doing really well and they, the Western auctions were getting 75 to $100 average on coyotes a lot of guys from the southern u.s and from the east were shipping fur out to idaho thinking my fur is not that bad you know i i look at what they're getting it can't be that much worse than what they're getting you know so they'd ship it out and of course the that brings the averages down because the buyers the buyers know what they're looking for um, they're not they're not downgrading your pelt because it comes from a certain area they're downgrading because the quality's not there so uh, that there, there's a little bit of that going on, but in general, you know, there it is better quality fur, and it's pretty good quantities, and they attract a lot of buyers. So Rusty Kramer, the president of the Idaho Trappers Association, guy that does a lot of work, um, 
a lot of volunteer time to uh, promote trapping and to promote things like these auctions. Uh, really good guy. Um, appreciate what he does, but he provided a, an update on the fur auction results from their recent auction. So uh, that was about a week ago, but a week, week and a half ago. I think it was last weekend. So we're, we're going to kind of go through this and just kind of give you some idea of of where we're at. So they had, uh, they had, uh, I'll throw in badgers. That's not really a common item, but they had 74 badger that went for $16.89. Now let's move on to beaver. So the beaver, they had 387 beaver. Um, a couple things going on here. Beaver in the West, the Rocky Mountain states, are really not a great beaver. The pelts are decent quality as far as primeness and thickness, but the colors are off. They're, they're really a lighter colored beaver. Like where I'm at in northern Maine, we have a much darker colored beaver, and we always uh, get better prices than those western beavers. Um, but they did pretty good. They had 387 beaver that averaged $14.55. Now, it, it, something to be careful about. Um, I, I suspect that what's going on here is I, I think based on what I am have been seeing with other auctions and the supply and demand for beaver pelts, I think that is an $14.55 is a pretty high number for what we can expect for the overall beaver market. And because prices have been low, because there aren't a lot of people out trapping, for small buyers, there's kind of a limited number of beaver out there for them to purchase. And so you get a little bit of competition. People are looking to to get the beaver pelts they need. Beaver are pretty commonly used in small craft type uh, markets where people make like blankets or gauntlet mittens uh, or hats out of beaver pelts, um, or they'll do like uh, you know the, they'll they'll put them on like a, a willow or a a popple. Uh, hoop they'll hoop those beavers and make them into like an old Native American type of thing a dream catcher and all that stuff um, just a really cool type of novelty item and they're not buying a hundred thousand beaver to do that they're they're buying like 50 or 75 and so when you have an offering of 387 in an area where there's a lot of those small craft markets uh, you can get a little bit of bidding and you can get some you know, some fairly decent prices relative to what the market's doing right now. But a few days from now, Fur Harvesters is going to offer 55,000 beaver at auction. And we're going to have to see whether that trend uh, continues. And I, I would suspect that we're not going to be, uh, that we're going to have those bidders are going to, you know, they're going to pay, pay up for the decent quality beavers, but it's going to drop off pretty quick from there. And I think we're going to see, uh, probably a 10 to $13 average on beaver. And the reason I say that is because that's pretty much what we've been averaging for the past five years or more. So it's just a kind of reality of the way things are right now. Bobcat. So Bobcat were this, you know, pretty decent market for the high end, better quality Bobcats. Those are averaging like you know, a lot of these Western sales we're getting between five to seven hundred dollar averages on bobcats then that dropped down to three to five hundred dollars and then it was like eh, 250 maybe um the bobcats 918 cats from the idaho auction sold for an average of 216 dollars 
So, uh, and eighty percent of them sold. So there there were some bobcats that were unsold, but th they were, you know, if th this was about as good as you're going to get in this market. They had a bunch of Western cat buyers there at the auction. I think Rusty said that they had, uh, oh, how many different buyers did he say? I can't remember, but they had they had at least half a dozen buyers bidding on on bobcats, and so. That was pretty good average for what we're going to get, and, and you know we probably the overall average from FHA is is going to be uh, well under that. Beaver caster, the caster remember was going between ninety and hundred ten dollars a pound, and uh, caster averaged fifty seven dollars and seventy six cents a pound. There was one hundred thirty five pounds offered uh, at the auction, so um, that that's kind of showing the the low declining trend in beaver caster i really don't know what's going on with that market but it is uh you know nothing good lasts forever and it's starting to, to trend downward probably has something to do with the overall economy now moving on to the biggest surprise of this idaho trappers association for auction coyotes and it, i hate to be i don't want to be a jerk i don't want to say i told you so but I, I really honestly felt that this was going to happen. I didn't know how long it was going to take. But when you have the biggest buyer of coyote pelts bowing out of the market, all the imitators and the, the other coat makers and the trim users, they, they may try to keep that market propped up. But, boy, it just I, – I think when, it, when it's going to break, it's going to break. And – you, you you can sometimes the difference between a uh, hundred dollar pelt and a ten dollar pelt is one or two buyers and that's all it takes we have so many other factors going on in this market basically where it's at right now in my opinion there is no coyote market right now um, and I think a lot of these coyotes were bought on speculation People, buyers who have, remember just a couple years ago, they were they were buying these coyotes for $100 a piece, and then they were selling them for more than that, and they were doing well. And they're seeing these pelts just, there's no bid, no bid, no bid, and they're scooping them up, figuring what the heck you never know it could turn. But uh, granted, there were some southern coyotes that were shipped to this auction, so it wasn't all those Western, you know, top quality coyote pelts, but uh, 1,788 coyotes at the Idaho auction sold for an average of $14.66. Um, that was 90%, 91% of those were sold of those 1,788. So whatever it was, uh, you know, 15, 1,600 were sold. So $14.66. The this this same item where we we were seeing 70 to 100 dollar averages um, for the last two three years pretty consistently yeah that's that is a big blow and i feel i feel bad for the people who were going after those western coyotes or were going after coyotes say in kansas or in the northeast and thinking well you know they the prices are so high i know they're going to drop but they can't get that low. Well, they kind of did. Um, so I don't know what the fur harvesters auction is going to be like. They they said, you know, Mark Downey said that 
they they had uh, a bunch of different buyers that were interested, but that was a couple months ago, and uh, I I don't know how interested those buyers actually were. I I, I really it's really hard to say. Um, but but right now the the coyote market is purely um, being held up by speculation, and that speculation is uh, is pretty weak. Let's move on to some little positive. Martin. So Western Martin are typically like 25 bucks. 20 to 30 bucks is pretty standard. And uh, they, you know sometimes they'll go as low as like 15. They're just not a really good quality Martin. The colors aren't good and the pelts aren't good and the size isn't good. It's just nothing like a northern like Alaskan type Martin. Uh, but these sold well. Uh, $33. There were 246 Martin and they sold for a $33 average. 100% of them sold. And this is consistent with the Russian Sable auction recently, just a few weeks ago, that um, saw some pretty good clearance and good prices. Uh, it's also consistent with FHA saying that they've had a lot of demand and interest in Martin. So uh, that that is a potential bright spot. You know, we we could, if you're one of the trappers that does target Martin, you know, we could see some fairly decent prices for them. Uh, mink, just a few mink, 55 are sold for $7.27 average. You know, most mink have been five or six bucks, so that's, you know, a little better than normal. Muskrats, $3 average on rats, or a little over 3000 that were sold there. And I think pretty consistently, rats have been selling. They're not great, they're not bad. They're kind of uh, that three to four dollar range is is pretty much uh, where we've been at all season. Raccoon actually sold fairly decent, but there are only three hundred and ninety of them, and uh, you know that's again there's some specialty markets there. They sold for seven dollars average. Red fox seventeen dollars. Uh, skunk did really well, one hundred twenty nine skunks, average fifteen dollars a piece. That again is the specialty craft uh, novelty type of market. So. Yeah, that's the Idaho Trappers Association fur sale. That's pretty consistent with uh, a lot of the uh, the other fur sales that have been going on at the state level, and I think it's a pretty pretty good uh, pulse on where we're at with the fur market. So, the fur harvesters auction that starts on March twenty fourth, and the auction is going to be. Uh, you can view the furs in person, which is the first uh, opportunity for that in quite a while. So in the past the past two years, the buyers have had to basically look at pictures and videos to evaluate fur, which is not great, especially high on high-end items. Now buyers, um, if they have their, they've come from the right country and they passed the COVID protocols, they can go to Canada and inspect the furs themselves. However, the auction is not live uh, in person. The auction is going to be an online auction. So that is kind of, we're kind of halfway out of this whole COVID era for sale thing. So it's hard to tell whether uh, this is going to be like the true auction experience. I also don't know if they're going to do private treaty after the auction or if it's just, uh, you know, if it doesn't sell, that's it. We're going to wait and hold on. I really don't know. Um, I don't think anybody really knows. And we don't know what the demand's going to be. You know, we, we, um, we're in the middle of situation right now, just the last several days and the last couple of weeks since I recorded the last episode, the world is kind of turned upside down. Russia invaded 
Ukraine, there's a huge war going on there. You know, Russia has all, all basically most of the world has, has uh, basically told Russia that we're not going to do business with you anymore. And they, the Russian economy is, is on the edge of a complete collapse. And so those are people that buy a lot of fur. At the same time, in China, uh, China's kind of in this little situation where they're they're kind of back and forth between whether they might support Russia in this war or sell weapons to Russia and all that. I won't get into the politics of that. This is not a political podcast. But I will say that China is potentially on the edge of some economic sanction issues. And uh, coronavirus has just reemerged in China. They got major lockdowns in some of their major cities. And so we're basically in like the worst nightmare for fur and fur sales. The two major countries that are uh, critical for this fur market are either at war or they're in some serious economic trouble and in lockdown. So um, I don't know what, what's going to happen here, but I, I, I'm going to be completely honest with you. I'm really pessimistic about it. Um, I, I just, uh, I don't see a way out in this fur market. I, I really don't. Um, I, I, for a while before all this happened, before COVID, I thought we were in a pretty good situation where we, we could see some emergence, especially for wild fur. And uh, the way the world has changed so much lately, I really don't know. Um, I, I, I think that we're moving even faster toward this new fur market that is dominated by uh, local production, local consumption. Um, basically, uh, catching fur, getting it tanned, selling it locally, or making crafts and items out of your fur, and trying to encourage local consumption of that fur. Because this this international fur market, I boy, I, some people I've talked to are a little more optimistic than I am, and I, I appreciate that optimism, but I really don't buy it. Um, I, I'm, uh, I'm thinking we're in for, for continued tough times. So if anybody relies on fur sales for part of their income, I feel really bad for you right now. Um, if anybody's anticipating going out and trapping really hard right now, um, you're just understand that you're taking a huge risk. Uh, you could, you could have a bunch of fur when there isn't much available to sell and the demand picks up and comes back. Um, that could be a great position. The old Warren Buffett saying is you you, uh, you buy you buy stocks when there's blood in the streets, when everything seems at, at its worst. Um, and in a normal market situation, I'd say that would be absolutely right. But the right now we're in a situation where, you know, let's compare it to the stock market. It's as if the stock market wasn't even open. It's like Russia's stock market. It's been closed for a couple weeks now. They're not even trading. Um, you can't buy, you can't sell. There's just there's so many disruptions in this this fur economy lately that um, it, it really is not a true market anymore. So, yeah, go. You want more pessimism? Go back to uh, to back when I did the episode called "The Fur Market Is Dead." I think that was a couple of years ago. Uh, but yeah, I, I feel the same way. I guess I'm, I'm sorry to sorry to be such a Debbie Downer. But on the bright side, the good news is we're not all trapping for the money. Um, there's a lot of other reasons to trap. Healthy wildlife populations, animal damage control, enjoyment, 
spending time outdoors, spending time with family, uh, trapping for meat, for, for, for food, trapping for fur that you're going to use yourself. I mean, there's, there are so many other reasons to get out there and trap. So, um, don't be too discouraged unless you're one of those guys that, that there's really was a big numbers trapper. Um, I know guys like, I just heard that Rally Hess, who's the big beaver trapper in Minnesota, he went to work in a mine driving big rock trucks. <laughs> um, probably a smart decision. You know, you, you, uh, at $40 beaver, you catch, you know, 800 beaver in a winter, you do pretty good, really good. But at $8 beaver, um, it's, it's a lot of work for a lot of nothing. So that's the way it goes. It's the reality of life sometimes. Okay, moving on. So I want to do, uh, and we'll talk more fur when the uh, fur harvesters auction concludes, and we'll, we'll I'll have more, more to say about that. I don't know, maybe I'll do a YouTube video too on it and I'll do a write up but um, let's let's get on to a different topic uh, first I want to give a shout out um, there's a YouTube channel from a guy that I, I just recently discovered and was emailing back and forth with him listener to the podcast Enigmatic Gwichin so that's E-N-I-G-M-A-T-I-C G-W-I-C-H-I-N and this is a native guy from the Yukon Flats he traps in uh, pretty much in the same area as I trapped in in my book More Than Wolverine and the stuff that I covered in this podcast when I went to Alaska. Uh, he's just 30, 40 miles away from where, where Jim and I were. Uh, really interesting guy, and he has started a YouTube channel recently, and he's putting up a bunch of videos of his trapping and wood cutting and snow machine riding and all that stuff. And it's just it's such a beautiful area. It really is an incredible area that he's in. And I think you get a better appreciation for the scenery and uh, the place. And, and uh, he does a really good job filming. So check out Enigmatic Gwichin's YouTube channel. I think that you will enjoy it. And be sure to subscribe to that. Now, speaking of that being a beautiful place, I want to talk about place. I almost was going to do a full podcast episode on place, but I'm not really sure how this is going to work out. I'm kind of going to wing it. I just kind of... Uh, you know how you, sometimes you have thoughts and a little bit of a flash of a thought or an idea and you start thinking, boy, you know that you, you start thinking about it and thinking about it a little bit more and you come up with an idea and you start thinking uh, of different uh, memories that are consistent with that idea. And then all of a sudden you have a big topic that you want to talk about. That's kind of how my mind works, I guess. So I was working today and I got to thinking about some things. And I thought about place. And the reason that place or area or where you're at, uh, when I talk about place, I mean where you are right now. You're listening to this podcast. Where are you sitting or standing or running or walking or riding? Where are you at? And why are you there? Why are you in that place? What causes us to be in a specific place? The reason that I think a lot about place now, and I've thought a lot about place in the last two years, is because of my trip to Alaska. Because I realized that there was a piece of me that probably belonged in that place. And I've been wrestling with that for the last couple of years. Uh, Part of me wants to be in this place where I'm at, right here in northern Maine. It's a beautiful place. It has almost everything that I could ever ask for except for 
what that place up in interior Alaska has to offer. So I thought about that a lot and the back of my mind. And then I thought about the front of my mind a little bit today. And I, I thought about the people that are in those different places and how they got there and why they're there. And so I, I think this applies to trapping. I, I don't tend to get away from trapping much in this podcast and I don't want to do that. So I'm going to keep this pretty consistent in terms of, of how this applies to trappers. And here's the big thing that I, that I see with trapping. Most of us do not determine our place, the place that we live in, the place that we grew up in, the place that we spend our lives in, based on trapping. Now, if you do, Jim Furman did. He moved from Anchorage to Fort Yukon, Alaska because he wanted to trap. And during that time period in the 70s and before that, a lot of people moved to certain areas because they wanted to trap. But for the most part, you are in a place for different reasons. And you pick up trapping. And you you basically have to work with what you have in your place. And for some people, that's great. For some people, you are fortunate enough to have grown up or to be living in a place that is incredible um, for a trapper to be in. Great fur resources, lots to trap for, high quality fur, really good regulations. You know, maybe you don't have the best fur, but maybe you're in a place like Louisiana where the trapping regulations are awesome and you can do so many things that I can't do up in Maine. Uh, you know, the, the, all of those things, those positives, negatives that have to do with the specific place that you're in with maybe the, just the political boundaries that somebody drew around the area that you live in. Um, state lines or country boundaries, borders, uh, completely out of your control, but it really affects you as a trapper. And some people actually move, and some people should move, uh, if they want a better trapping experience to get into a better place. But when you're in a place and you're kind of settled in, it's really, really hard to do. One of the things that I think about a lot is people who live in a place like Massachusetts or Washington state where for the most part trapping has been banned, but you have a family, you have a house, maybe you have connections, you have friends, you have a job, you've put your heart and soul into everything in that place. And then all of a sudden, one of the things that you really love to do is either illegal or it's fairly heavily restricted. For most people, for probably 95% of people, you're not going to move just so that you can trap. <clears throat> maybe you'll travel to trap in a different place or maybe you'll, you know, you'll, you'll find a way to make it work even with the stricter regulations. But you're kind of a, a victim of your place. And I, I kind of wrote down a couple of things, you know, what, why are you in your specific place? So the biggest thing is you're in a place because it's home. You're in that place because you grew up there. Uh, we're kind of like, uh, you know, I'm a fish biologist, so I think about like spawning fish. So you have spawning salmon that are imprinted on the 
place where they hatched out of the eggs and the gravel and the stream and the Atlantic salmon, you know, they'll, they'll migrate down to the ocean. They'll live in the ocean for a few years, but they always go back to that place. That's home. They're kind of imprinted on that. And a, a lot of people in my area in Northern Maine, they may leave for specific reasons, go to school, get educated, get a job, whatever. But a lot of them come back. They're kind of like imprinted on it. You know, you, you it's really hard to, to break people uh, that grew up here from wanting to come back. Um, especially if they like the outdoors and the, the things that are really the high, um, the, the benefits of living in this place. So just being born and raised in a place, it really, there's a lot of lock-in effect there. You're probably not going to leave. The vast majority of people that are born and raised in a specific place tend to stay there. Another reason you're in a place is your occupation. Um, maybe you had to move to that place to get a job. And so the other factors, like what's the trapping like? What's the hunting and fishing like? Is it a rural or area or an urban area, depending on your job? You know, you may not have much of a choice. You may just live there because you need to be close to your work. And then you trap, you know, you'll, you go on a vacation for a few weeks and a couple weeks and go to a different state, or you just, you, you make it work and you trap in the outskirts of the city or, or, or suburban area. Um, because that's just where you work. That's that's where you live because of your job. Maybe you're in a place because you want to get rich. Now, th- this is pretty interesting, and, and this is a little bit off topic. We have to go back like 100 years to really get into this this whole idea that I got behind place and, and how people get into place. Because I thought about this when I was Looking back on my book, More Than Wolverine, Alaska Wilderness Trapline, if you haven't bought it, please do. You're you're missing out. Come on, guys. If you haven't bought this, you got to get stop listening to this right now and get on there and buy the book. Amazon or trappingtodaystore.com. But I talked a lot about the people uh, who moved to this area. And this, like especially this Fort Yukon area, was, was really a major hub of trappers back in the early 1900s, all the way up to the middle of the century. And they were there. They were there to catch fur because there was a good market for fur. And there were other people who didn't trap who were there that opened up trading posts to buy fur and to sell supplies to trappers because of that strong fur market. Um, Those people would never have been there if it wasn't for the chance Uh, the opportunity to get rich and a lot of these people if you look back on like jimmy carroll um uh, above the arctic circle if you ever read that book it's a great book to to read uh the guy was 17 years old from minnesota and he moved to alaska in the gold rush to get rich working the gold mines joe ward same thing 1910 immigrated from england Going to get rich working in the gold mines or doing something, working working somewhere in America um, or North America. Try to try to get a job, good paying job, get rich. Went out prospecting. If you look back in the gold rush era, there were an incredible number of people from all walks of life, from all over the country and all over the world that went to Alaska and Canada, went to the Yukon to try to strike it rich. They were in that place 
to get rich. And the reality of it was that almost all of them did not get rich. Almost all of them lost a bunch of money and went back home to their families, to their jobs, to the reality of their lives, to their cities, their suburbs, whatever, and resumed uh, back to normal life. But there were people who stayed. And that's the thing that really got me to thinking about the people who are descendants of those people who stayed up in the interior of Alaska, Canada, in the bush, those people who are are still there living this remote lifestyle, these isolated villages, their ancestors, you know, there, there were tens of thousands of people that moved into those areas and left and never even left a trace. There were also people who moved in those areas, made a bunch of money, and they went back. There were there were fur traders in Fort Yukon who who went moved out there from the northeast, worked for ran trading posts for twenty, thirty years, made a bunch of money and went back to the northeast to retire. That happened. That was that was actually pretty normal. But there were people who stayed, and what was it that caused those people to stay? I think that you will notice that this that the factor um the factor that determined whether they stayed or they left had a lot to do with the factor that determines what what we do in our everyday lives and where you are at right now um cole and i were texting about this the last few days my friend cole porter also here in northern maine and and we're talking about alaska and his brother uh, is living in alaska right now he's in fairbanks and uh He's he's kind of living the dream, living our dream. And we talk about, oh, yeah, I'd love to go, I'd love to go. But, but really, in reality, we have what we call golden handcuffs. We have good jobs, health insurance, family to support, a house, land. We have all of these things that are great in our lives that we would have to give up to go and do that. And so if you look at the people who, who stayed I think what you're going to find is a very common denominator that they had no alternative. Jimmy Carroll left his home when he was 14 years old to go work in the lumber camps in Minnesota. Huge family, dirt poor poverty. He had nothing to stay in Minnesota for. He moved to Alaska. There was nothing to go back home for. That's just the way those people grew up. There, were, there was nothing there for them. There was no, there was no savings account, bank account, inheritance. No, probably I don't know how many kids is he. His family was probably you know at least eight or ten kids. You know, wasn't going to inherit a farm or anything. He was dirt poor. His family was dirt poor. He was a hard worker. He moved to Alaska. He had nothing to go back for. And so he made his home in the bush and then in Fort Yukon. He opened a store. He he married a woman from that area. He had a dozen kids. 25% of the village's population is descendants of him and his wife because he stayed. You look at Joe Ward. Um, the guy moved, uh, immigrated from England, and he was all around the, you know, the U.S. and Canada, and then he went to the interior, and they went up the Porcupine River to search for gold. They got frozen. They had to spend the winter there. They built a cabin. Joe stayed 50 years, trapper, 
his whole life. He had nothing to go back to. He had a nickel when he left England. A nickel. Dirt poor. No career. No inheritance. No job security. No future. He had no alternative. So it's interesting how you, when you think about that. And, and uh, it, it, it's easy to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and say, he should go there and he should go there and that's better trapping there and you should move to this state or you should be in that place. But there, there are these factors that we don't think about very often. And, and maybe we know in the back of our mind, but uh, we don't really think about the sacrifices that are involved. Um, there is no perfect place. There is no perfect situation. There is no right decision. That's the tough part. It's just making this decision, trying to figure out where you want to be. And you could up and move every time you think there's something better out there and you could realize that Maybe I should have just stayed where I started. I've seen that too. And then the final reason that people are in a place is to escape. And I, I see this, I, I think of this to guys like Tyler Selden, you know, from the last Alaskans up, up there, you know, not far from, from where I went in the book More Than Wolverine. And Tyler and Ashley are there because basically he he could not, once he experienced that wilderness lifestyle, you know, he had to have it. He had to be there. And it was such a strong pull to get away from the city and get away from people and live out there that he was willing to sacrifice every other part of, of life. And they were both willing to sacrifice that in order to have that experience. And so you see that nowadays with the few people who are left in the bush. They're there because the draw is stronger than whatever they have that's that's left behind. It's an interesting thing. I don't think we think about it much. I, I never did until I was uh, working today and I, I got to thinking about this whole topic of a place. And, and why are you in a certain place? And should you leave that place or should you stay where you're at and be happy where you're at? Um, yeah, something to think about. All right, guys. Thank you again for listening in. I'm going to ask you one more time. Uh, if I've ever brought you any value uh, through this podcast or through my other channels, please buy my book, More Than Wolverine, Alaska Wilderness Trapline. Give it a read. If you've already bought it, please uh, leave a review on Amazon and a rating. That will really help more people find the book. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. And I'll try to get on here and uh, give you a little update after the FHA auction. Um, take care, guys. Keep on talking trapping. Keep on thinking trapping. We'll catch you on the next episode. <laughs>